Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. This week I chat to Charlie Hamilton James, who is a camera operator, presenter and award-winning photographer. You'll have seen him and his work in programmes like I Brought a Rainforest, Halcyon River Diaries, and his camera work has been featured in numerous blue-chip nature programmes. We cover a whole range of subjects, from his passion for otters and kingfishers, what pisses him off in wildlife photography, and briefly mention his upcoming book, I Can't Eat My Guinea Pig, I've Had Too Much Cocaine. Strap yourselves in, it's going to be an interesting podcast. Well, thanks for joining me, Charlie. Oh, I've got Mm. you mid-slurp, sorry. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) obviously I have to have a cup of tea before we do yeah yeah while we're doing this yeah well uh, well same same here i've got mine uh mine to hand as well and i don't know if you can remember uh quite a while ago we did meet at wild photos that was a while ago it was a while ago and i remember because i was at fanworth at the time at the the course the marine natural history course they have there and there was um during the break all the students would scramble to the speakers and i remember there being like a queue almost for people to try and talk to you and you were very you were very polite because you, you know, you were talking to people and I eventually got my turn and I can't remember what we talked about. We had a quick chat anyway. I thought that was quite good of you. And I remember the following day, I just walked past you in the hallway and you said, oh, hello, Jack. And I thought, oh, that's nice. It's not, he actually remembered my name rather than just, you know, walking by as so many others do. So I thought that was quite, uh, quite good. You see, a Hector, who was my assistant back then, who's now an established cameraman, he used yeah. to say to me, why is it that you get all the weirdos and everyone else gets all the normal people? So don't feel flattered, Jack. Because <laughs> I used to stand there and you'd say, why do you get all the weirdos? So, I don't know. Well, you know what? I've been called worse than that. So I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that. And, you know, maybe they see that in you, Charlie. They're like, he's one mm. of us. He's one of these. Yeah, I, I suspect that is the case. I think that's got, I've got to be, it's got to be that, hasn't it? <laughs> you, you've had a pretty varied career in, in both stills and, and moving image. Uh, but what would you say was your, your kind of break into the industry then? I don't know. There were, I, there were several, actually. I mean, I started working on, I started working for Attenborough when I was 16. Oh, wow. And um, I was like the kingfisher guy at the beginning. I, I grew up right next to the BBC, but I was also obsessed with kingfishers. So I, I, by the time I was 16, I was like the kingfisher guy at the BBC because kingfishers were always in kind of high demand and were seen as difficult to film. I was always, I got a lot of work doing that. So, you know, I was getting paid 30, 30 pounds a day to work on the trials of life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I, you know, and then, so I kept, I, you know, I kept doing that for two decades, really. And then I also became the otter guy. So I, I really cornered two British species that were difficult to film, but two, you know, probably the most popular two species in Britain, really. Yeah, to, they got to, good to, followings. By yeah, to, to have on TV. So I ended up really cornering that sort of market as far as kingfishers and otters. So you had to choose between a kingfisher and otter. Have you got a favourite or is that an impossible question? Oh, no, it's otters. <laughs> Fuck kingfishers. <laughs> no, I love them, but I just, you know, I, I really, I've done it. And <laughs> like, 
there's not a part of me that I still get a thrill when I see one, but there is not a single part of me that wants to sit in a hide and photograph kingfishers anymore. Oh, really? So, just because you've been yeah, there and I mean, done that? I've just done it since I was, you know, 12. Also, I don't bait kingfishers anymore. No. So it's, you know, the only way I can really work with them would be to sit outside a nest and do so. It's just, you know, I just, I've got no reason to other than passion. And to be honest, I've spent thousands of hours doing it. I, you know, just don't really need to anymore. No, I mean, the thing with kingfishers, I guess, as well, is they're, they're not that difficult to see. Like, to get a photo is a different thing, but you can walk along pretty much any river in the UK and you've got a chance of seeing one, you know, beep, beep, beep the little whatever the call uh, kind of mm. high-pitched call going by but to see an otter that's a, that's an, an event really like you know they're everywhere but they're not easy to see so i mean i can count with one hand how many times i've i've chanced upon an otter in the day uh, in, in england anyway and uh, it is always amazing to see them so i can i can kind of see but you know now it's like it's totally different now to what it was 15 20 years ago yeah i mean you just didn't see otters in certainly in england no. Apart from a very, you know, occasionally on the levels, occasionally on the broads, you know, and you could see them up in Scotland and, you know, yes, it's sort of in West Wales and Central Wales, but, but to see them in England like we do now, you know, often in, in towns and cities, is, it, it, it is amazing how they've not just come back, but how they've um, urbanised or, or just become more accepting of people. And I don't really understand why they've done it. I understand how they've come back, but why they've started becoming more diurnal and more, you know, some of the, I'm not going to mention any names of towns, but some places, certainly in the south of England, you know, you can just walk through town, there's otters swimming around everywhere. I saw seven otters in half, in a, no, it was a quarter mile stretch. Yeah. Yeah, they have become prolific in some places almost haven't they yeah. and uh, you know yeah without naming names there's a few places that come to mind that i can think you've got a reasonable chance of seeing an otter you know now really yeah it's crazy but yeah, yeah. it's nice i think it's wonderful they are they're amazing cre- i mean I've, I've been lucky enough to go to shetland a couple of times and you kind of get a bit blase i know you've been there multiple times but you get a little bit blase or i, I do in the end because you you're almost seeing them. You're kind of wafting them out the path, like the, walking mm. down the street. Like, oh, there's another otter. Get out of the way. They're uh, <laughs> they're everywhere up there, and it is uh, it's magical wherever you see them. Really, isn't it? We mentioned a little bit about stills and video. So again, you've worked in both of those industries. Have you got a a preferred one? I mean, I know you, you're doing some work with National Geographic at the moment, aren't you? I'm, I'm presuming that's stills predominantly. But you um, have you got one that you prefer to do, or is it kind of part and parcel? No, I mean, I much prefer shooting stills. I, I started out as a cameraman and then ended up as a you know, presenter and, and a producer. And then I, then I went into stills. And the, the reason I went into stills is because I always wanted to be a stills photographer. That's what I ever really wanted to be. I, ended up, I only made TV because, because there was an actual, you know, there was an industry, there was a TV industry. There is no real wildlife photography industry. It's more of a loose collection of people. Um, and the work is very insecure and it's, it's very difficult to make a living as a wildlife photographer. And I didn't want to, couldn't be bothered. I wanted to go and, you know, get paid to do the thing I loved rather than, rather than really struggling. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm very honest about it. That's why I became cameraman. And I loved being, you know, I loved it. 
but it was to me it was never the challenge I really wanted taking stills was why you know I wanted to work for National Geographic when I was 10 you know that's all <laughs> I ever really wanted to do and uh, I took a very long circuitous route into doing that and I don't you know I, I loved working in TV but um, it wasn't it wasn't my great passion my great passion was animals and TV requires a huge amount of work that's that's not involved in your passion. There's a lot of paperwork, there's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a, you know, especially when you're producing, there's a whole lot of stuff you do that that isn't really what you want to be doing. And you know, and and, and whereas stills, I'm out doing the thing I want to be doing all the time. So, I guess it's more simplistic then with stills. It is. I I I think it's more simple. But I actually think it's a harder discipline. Capturing a still image is to me, it's technically more difficult i say that i'm really talking about when i was working in tv i look at the stuff that's being done now by you know certainly my old assistants my old colleagues and i'm just you know i'm just blown away by you look at the work that jamie mcpherson's doing uh and it just on you know our planet and things using gyro stabilized camera equipment and it's just mind-blowing what those guys are doing you know i think it's all wonderful but it's a different world to me now. Yeah, it, it advances so quickly, I guess, isn't it? I mean, camera gear, I mean, I, I, on a completely different level, obviously this is right at the bottom of the food chain, but say GoPros, for example, I remember the very first GoPro and do, trying to play around with that. And I look back at it now and it's like a potato, the quality that you got <laughs> from it. And that's only like seven years ago. It's not that long ago mm. compared to what you can do now. But obviously the, the highest spec cameras are advancing so quickly. It's uh, it's incredible. But it is interesting to hear you say that because when I've spoken to people who do both video and stills, nearly everyone says they enjoy the stills more. And I think you've kind of summed it up when you say, yeah, it's a little bit more, it's just you with the camera and you've got a little bit more freedom and there's not so much bureaucracy and other things like that in there. So yeah, I'd love to just do stills like yourself, but it's, if I just did stills, I'd, I'd, I'll probably be living in a box at the side of the street somewhere. So <laughs> I think you've got to diversify a little bit. And am I, am I right in saying you, you did go to university in Falmouth for a brief, you, you didn't do three years, did you? You just kind of did it a little bit and thought, no? Or, or what was what's the story uh, No, I that? was, no, I was, the, so I failed really badly at school. I only got three GCSEs, um, right. one of which is woodwork. And so I wasn't qualified to do very much. So I got on a, a BTEC photography course in Falmouth. And it, was a, it was the second year they'd run the photography course in Falmouth. So it was 1990, I think. So there was no degree back then. Right. I'm with there was you. no wildlife. Okay. It was a basic, they did a, uh, a basic BTEC ND course and you could go on to do an HND course. And it was two years. It was two years full time. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And actually I had a lot of fights with my... Um, my lecturer there, Dave, who weirdly I messaged about five minutes before coming on uh, this podcast. <laughs> I had a lot of fights with Dave. Dave and I hated each other because <laughs> I was a you know, I was an arrogant little prick. And uh, <laughs> all I wanted to do was photograph wildlife and he didn't want me to do wildlife at all. He didn't want, yeah, so the course in Falmouth was nothing to do with wildlife. And his, his message was, look, stop doing wildlife. You come here to learn photography. You know, I just, I didn't want to learn how to light a vase, you know, a jug full of water and a cup full of, I didn't want to. And I look back now and I, I you know, with shame really, because he, Dave was 100% right, is that, 
you know, I think to be a good wildlife photographer, you have to know what a good photo is. You know, you need to learn photography just as much as you need to learn field craft. And, and he knew that. And actually, we got on great now. I mean, it's, <laughs> we could make this on Facebook. So, but no, it's, I mean, it then became eventually, a, you know, a, was it a marine biology and natural history course, whatever it is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I've, I haven't been there in 25 years. So. No, you're not, was, miss, you're not missing great. much. <laughs> it, was a, it was a wonderful place to go. The only yeah. reason I went to college was that I lived, I grew up in the middle of Bristol. I wanted to go and live in the countryside somewhere. And we had friends in a place called Constantine, a little village outside yeah, Falmouth. Yeah. And I went and lived with them. And that's really the reason I went to college was so I could live in the countryside. I think that's a big draw for a lot of people that go to that university is like you get to live in Cornwall for, you know, two, three years or whatever. And it's, mm. it, it's an amazing world that's completely different to what most of us are used to. You know, it, it, Cornwall just has its own ecosystem into wildlife and people. And it's just a very different place. But it's, uh, it's a lovely place to live when you get the chance. So well, you... I think my son is going to apply. Oh, really? OK. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah he's he should do. To, I was talking to him about it the other day, so... How, how yeah, was how was he? Eighteen or a bit older? Twenty. Twenty. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tell him. Tell him to go to Club I. All right. It, it, <laughs> it's that's an experience. That's that's all you need to learn down there. Really, it's terrible. Um, so you you moved out to Wyoming in 2015, I think. Is that right? So how how is it out? How is it living out there compared to say the UK? Because it must be completely different to to what it's like here. Yeah, I mean, it was just like kind of posh Scotland, I always say. It's, it's like Africa with good internet and coffee. Um, okay. It's, it's an amazing place. You know, you can go out on a game drive in the morning and see bears and wolves and, you know, elk. You can see things being hunted. It's amazing, actually. I mean, we lived in Jackson Hole which is kind of, they call it the coolest small town in the Rockies. And it's, just, it's a very shishi Shishi's probably the wrong word. It's a very cool <laughs> little place. There's far too many tourists there, so it's kind of ruined in the summer. But Grand Teton National Park is just stunning. And, you know, I've got fond memories of working there and doing a lot. I did a lot of camera trapping there. Uh, I think, is that the stuff so, you've done with bears on carcasses and things like that? Is that what? Yeah, I did a lot yeah. of work with bears. Uh, I did a lot of failed work with wolves, a lot of cougars. And, um, but just a you know phenomenal place to live, and you know you've got you've got a cool little town to live in, and then just this extraordinary environment to spend your time, you know, whether yeah. you're skiing or hiking or running away from bears, or <laughs> it's just it's just wonderful. You know, you just pack the car up every day, and drive you, off, and you never know what you'll see. Did you see the recent video of the the hiker and the cougar? I think that was doing the rounds of. Um, yeah. I don't know whereabouts that was shot, but he's Colorado, he's, wasn't it? So it might have been, yeah. And there was it's a bit misleading because you think the cougar's just attacking him, but you could see the cubs. I think at the beginning, so obviously it's just the mum freaking out because he's too close to uh, to them, and he's just yeah. And I think she off. did an amazing job. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, leave me alone. He's like, okay, I'm going to leave yeah. you alone now. Yeah. No, she it, was great. Uh, yeah, no, I've seen so many um, people, you know, reviewing it and everything else. But no, I mean, it's, yeah, it was a phenomenal bit of footage. And, uh, you know, and I think both the female and the hiker did very well. <laughs> they came off all right, both of them, didn't they? Well, they're both alive and they both, yeah. you know. Which is, you know, it's a win-win, <laughs> isn't it? all you want. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, uh, you starred in a, in a series called I Brought a, a Rainforest, which I think you got it for, for about six grand and you got 100 acres in Peru. So what made you want to do that? You know, what was your thought process like? I'm going to buy a rainforest, you know. There wasn't, yeah, there wasn't much thought process. Uh, <laughs> I got a call from my mate, Rob. Uh, him and I had been working in Manu, Manu in Peru, National Park, a lot. And so, you know, I'd been working there for 20 years. Robert, Rob was working there at the time. And uh, he just, you know, the, the head of the National Park had asked, asked him if we could buy this bit of forest and Rob just phoned me up and said, do you want to buy it? And I said, yeah, straight away without <laughs> thought. And it is, yeah, and we just did it. And um, it was a stupid thing to do. <laughs> Have you still got it? Have you still got it? Or? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, they, they, were, they built a, um, a park ranger station on it. No one bothered to tell me. <laughs> it's, um, it's, I think they're on a, an agreement of a 99-year lease at $1 a year. Okay. But I haven't managed to, you know, get my money yet. I must be owed like 7 or $8 now. Oh, well, you, you don't want to be out of pocket. <laughs> you? I mean, you, oh, no. you need to think about this. Didn't you, I, I, I remember correctly, didn't you find some uh, some guys doing, not doing drugs, they were making drugs. Is that right on there? or? or yeah, there like was the whole, the whole sort of experience was, I mean, the, yeah, it was, it was an, there was a logging camp on it. Um, yeah. There was an illegal coca plantation. And so we made that TV show really... I mean, it was funny because it was the easiest sell imaginable when you go into... You know, we had a meeting with the head of science at the BBC and, you know, we told her the title and it was like, it was just instant. Yeah, we want that. <laughs> but the, but then, the, you know, what was it? We didn't really know what it was. It was, a, you know, a stupid Englishman who's bought a rainforest. So the process of making it was... Uh, exhausting and extraordinary and you know I genuinely hadn't seen it when when we first filmed it and it, so that it was a kind of interesting process where I didn't know what I didn't know all the problems I'd just bought basically until I got there so it was and and you know and halfway through the realization of the real stupidity of what I had done well because you know I, I basically I bought I guess the most obvious way to describe it was, this, you know, there was an illegal logger on the land called Ilias. I bought the land off his dad, who was who had been in prison for coca, processing coca. And the Ilias, the, the guy who lived on the land, was a very prolific illegal logger, known by the authorities as a, you know, crook. He was this, he was that. And I was kind of terrified of him. And this director, Gavin, shows up. He said, well, you're going to have to kind of go meet him. You do own the land he lives on. And I went and met him one day. He's actually chopping a tree down when I met him. <laughs> and I was terrified of illegal loggers because all I ever heard was, was bad stuff. And uh, anyway, I met him. He was this nice guy. He said, and they're filming me. You know, the whole thing's being filmed. Cause, and uh, he says, oh, you know, I said, look, you've got to get off the land. We bought this land to protect it for the National Park because it's Butts National Park. He said, oh, I can't. I've got this disabled daughter. If you kick me off the land, you know, I've got nothing. And uh, I didn't believe him. And I turned to the camera and basically said, yeah, what a load of bullshit. So I, so I said, I'll call this bluff. I'll, I'll, I said, okay, I'll come on. Why don't I come around to your house tomorrow and meet her? 
So I, I went around to his house the next day and I met Heidi, his severely disabled daughter. I, you know, Gavin, the director's like on, on behind the camera saying, so you still gonna kick him off the land, Charlie? And I'm like, what, what sort of asshole would I be if I did? <laughs> And what that did is that opened this massive can of worms because, yeah, I bought this, this land, but it's got an illegal logger living on it and the legal logger has a disabled daughter and his only form of income to look after his family is this land and logging. And, and so I went on this journey across the Amazon to figure out this one problem. And this one problem was representative of, an, you know, all of the problems in the Amazon, basically, which are resource extraction by people with nothing, with no you know, people with nothing living on the edge of an enormously valuable resource. So, you know, my process to discover how to, you know, relook at the Amazon and Amazon conservation was based on one of actual experience and being filmed, being dragged through this kind of emotional mess and new understanding of the world, new understanding of life. And uh, I think I came out of it, you know, certainly a more liberal person. I suppose it's it's easy to see things as black and white, isn't it? But very few things in life are black and white. And, you know, you can say all loggers are evil because they're doing this, but you don't really think about potentially why they are doing it. So it's not something that we talk about, really, is it? No, I mean, you know, I was photographing poachers on the border with Kenya and Tanzania the other day. And, you know, the, the I'm with the rangers. It's like 10 o'clock at night. It's dark. They just arrested two poachers. They're treating them like shit and they're kind of knocking them around a bit. And uh, I show up and photograph them and, you know, and there's me and a journalist and, and she's making a real effort to, and I, and I am as well, we're both making a real effort to, to humanize these people to the rangers so they realize that these are human beings. And, you know, after half an hour, they, they got it. They stopped treating them badly and they thought, oh, these are human beings and, you know, it's really, conservation really can boil down so often to just the need of people for protein. <laughs> you know, people need protein. It's really simple. If you deny people protein, they have to find other ways to get it. And so, you know, old fashioned ideas of good versus bad, you know, illegal loggers are bad, gold miners are bad. It's just nonsense. These are often good people or normal, just normal people. It's, it's too easy to, to, um, to go one way or another and say they're great people or bad people. They're just normal people that have normal needs and they're denied normal needs by their situation. And so they have to find other ways of meeting those needs. And what we tend to do is turn people into bad guys and good guys. And that's not fair. Yeah, take, take hunting, for example, you know. In Africa, white people hunt, black people poach. It's really, you know, you yeah. want a black and white issue, you know, yeah. put it down those lines. One can afford to hunt, one can't, one poaches. You know, it's really that simple. And when you look at it like that, you see the, the absurdity and the hypocrisy of it. And it's the same all over the, you know, all over, certainly the developing world. And I spent, you know, on that rainforest series, I went and lived and worked with illegal loggers. And, I did all that stuff just so I could understand. I never really understand their predicament, but so I could get an inkling into yeah, their predicament. Yeah, yeah. Because if we don't, if we ignore it, if we write people off, if we deny people these things, then you know what? All we're going to ever do is fight with them. 
yeah. and lose because yeah. we are losing. <laughs> and, nof- <laughs> so. and nothing gets solved, does it? So you know, it, no, makes, it, it makes yeah. it makes sense. One of the one of the things I really enjoyed about you when when you were on Twitter, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention this in a second, but was just how you really didn't seem to give a fuck about what you what you said. Some of the captions that were on there I found quite refreshing actually in particular because a lot of people are so precious about how, how their online persona is I think I, one of the ones that stood out I can remember I think it was a large mosquito looking thing and the caption you had was like this is a cunt or something like that because it had bitten you and it was just this really mean looking fucking mosquito and I just thought do you think it matters what you post or is it just a, a case of being yourself yeah you know I I <laughs> <laughs> So I have, have a whole career based on being myself. I had it written to my contract with the BBC that I could swear and I bought a rainforest series. And it's not because I want to show off. It's just because, okay, in our industry, too often, certainly with men, there's this, there's this idea of being a hero and placing ourselves as the hero in our own narrative. And certainly if you look at Discovery Channel and you know, BBC and all these shows where there's this kind of, a hero white guy and I find it so obtuse and boring because we're not heroes we all have vulnerabilities and and it's just you know I've always been the same in the workplace I I have no interest in professionalism at all (laughs) I'm interested in being uh, a decent human being because I am a decent human being and that's all I'm interested I'm not interested in, in creating a fake persona of myself in order to progress my agenda I'm interested in just being a normal human being because normal human beings are accessible to other people. So it's, that's how I do it. You know, and I, I, it's the same with Instagram. You know, I, I love playing on Instagram. I've got <laughs> an audience. And, but I don't, they're, not, they're not customers to me. They're not of any value other than there are other decent human beings that I can interact with. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I play it. But I have got into taking the piss quite a lot lately. But mainly out of, you know, People with big egos who need bringing down Peggy. <laughs> yeah, no, they, everyone needs a needs a shot in the kneecap every now and again. I think just to bring them yeah. to level. So, what prompted you to leave Twitter? Because I, I was trying like, when I originally was trying to get in touch with you. I thought, oh, I'll speak to Charlie on Twitter, and I thought, all oh, right, that's been about four years or however when you left. So that's why I got in touch via Instagram. But what what was the kind of catalyst where you thought, you know, I'm getting out of here? It was. I get up every morning and I would sit on the loo and go through <laughs> it's a lovely picture to think of that yeah, it is. isn't that lovely <laughs> no i just got i just realized that it made me miserable i realized one day i thought do you know i'd spend all day getting antagonized by it. why am i why do i do it i realized i described it as two people playing chess by throwing all the pieces at each <laughs> other <laughs> so that was my analogy yeah and so i just quit one day and i've never i do not miss it at all and it's, you know, it's, it, the thing is with Twitter, it's all, you know, it's, it's all subjective because you really follow the people or the news content or whatever that you're interested in. I mean, it's the ultimate, form of, ultimate kind of form of subjective reasoning to support your own arguments. You have this idea of what, how you think the world is and you subjectively pick things that adhere to that. I think the problem now certainly, you know, it's the same with Facebook. Instagram's not so bad, but Facebook and Twitter. This is just a stream of misery and depressing shit. And I don't, I don't want to, I just don't want, you know, I, I read, I actually only read one news. I read the Washington Post every day, which is, you know, to me, a measured newspaper. But I don't need to be then bombarded with a load of left and right bullshit. 
uh, constantly. So, and you know, certainly as someone who kind of sits in the middle politically, I don't, I, I don't need this right and left extremism all the time. It, it seems to me miserable. Well, it does. I mean, it seems to be a more recent thing as well. I mean, I remember when Facebook was just pictures of cats and photos of your auntie, and now it's yeah, it is just full of memes. Like you say, it's either extreme, seems to be extreme left or extreme right. Like so there's not a lot mm. in the middle very often, and it does kind of get a bit like. Why, why are you bothering? So I, I'd agree that Instagram's probably the best out, the, out of a bad bunch, really. But I, I do kind of prefer that to uh, to the others, definitely. Yeah, it's not as political. And I, you know, I'm not at all political when I when I work with Instagram. Uh, and I've got no no interest in being political. Yeah, what I do occasionally, I get drunk and I post pictures of cowboys <laughs> cowboys branding cows, just to see the absolute hysterical outrage <laughs> and people unfollowing me i've lost five thousand followers in the last six weeks that's i'm impressive. doing well i don't know how i, don't know how I did it <laughs> so um but no if i post a cow because i i like working with cowboys because you know, i was living in wyoming but that you know i'd go and shoot the cattle branding and you'd post a picture of that and jesus the outrage Really? Um, yeah. Oh, I yeah, say, you know, I, I, say I understand really, I it. I understand it to an extent. You know, it's 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 a brutal, painful experience. But the the outrage would be, uh, you know, is aimed at me, and that's what's sort of <laughs> funny. But also, what it does is it reveals this massive political polarization in the U.S., where you know someone does something that you don't like or you don't agree with, and they are they should die, and you hate them. And that's what it actually reveals when you look at the comments. It's, I mean, yeah. if you've got, ever got 10 minutes to scroll through my Instagram feed until you find a cow being branded, and just <laughs> read those comments. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah no, I'll do that. Next time, next time I'm on, on the toilet, and I'm, and I'm yeah, there you for go. You know, when, I've, yeah. when I think this is going to be a 10-minute job, I'll... Um, you've got a long one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a bash. So... This obviously, you, you know, got lots of opinions and lots of things. I wondered what pisses you most off in wildlife photography. Is there something in particular where you're like, oh god? Well, I don't know if you saw my recent masterclass. <laughs> Do you see it? What, no, what was that? Oh, it's on my feed. I put it on my feed. So it's there. It's so I did a masterclass on. I did, okay, I hate egos. I hate big egos in wildlife photography. I hate the fact that they do better than the rest of us. Because they, if you constantly tell everyone, especially in the States, if you constantly tell everyone how amazing you are, <laughs> people believe it. And we have, I call it the ego warrior. So you get these photographers who position themselves as artists. That's a, a key word they would use. And they caption their work in several ways. One of which is to, is to so it's all about them for instance. So, okay, so you take, you'll start with a little bit about climate change and then very quickly becomes the narrative turns to them and how they are, how they are saving the world and helping them, you know, helping the rest of us is, is, a, is one of the ways it's done. Uh, they talk about their art in great deep terms when it's just a photo of an animal that's made black and white in Photoshop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> perfectly normal picture of an animal. Yeah. And I don't like particularly the thing I really dislike, which I see done a lot, is this is the way that these people will cast 
uh, the natural world in sort of mythological and spiritual terms and okay. and cast themselves as, as someone who has a deep understanding of that and what that does that that actually makes the natural world less accessible to the average member of the public who say lives in a city and doesn't really understand the world the natural world in 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 terms beyond what they've experienced and witnessed on television so if you do that if you cast the world in these spiritual terms and then you become the, like the the preacher the person that understands it you know people look at you as if you have this great depth but the truth is that there is no deep spiritual side to nature you know a fox is a fox a wolf is a wolf it doesn't matter how you pretend and you know it's just the way it is. So I don't like that very, to me, a very deliberate false narrative propagated in order to make themselves look good. And I will be doing more masterclasses <laughs> in the next few weeks on the subject because, you know, it's one thing doing that, writing stuff like that, but it's another thing. To me, it's another problem that um, they seem to do very well out of it when it's, to me, disingenuous and lacks all integrity. And it's do, all about narcissism and ego. Do you find that is more of a, an American thing, a, a British thing, or is it all across the table? Well, as I'm not going to name any names. No, both. no, it's both. Okay. But you know exactly who <laughs> yeah. I'm talking no, about. No, I do. Yeah, no, I, I do. I do. Because I think someone shared an article the other day, and I, I think you were quoted in that article. So I'm pretty sure and I know. There's, there's quite a few out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, there is. Yeah, definitely. It's. Um, I mean, as well, I don't, I think with wildlife photography, it's not, being a professional is not in, necessarily indicative of skill. No, I mean, it's, I don't know. Sorry, my mum's just come in from doing the shopping. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> even when you get old, it's never, never escaping that, is there? <laughs> well, I've got one more question anyway, and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. So as, as a wildlife cameraman, you're often put into uncomfortable situations, you know, whether it's boiling hot weather or fly infested jungles, What's the kind of worst situation that, that you've been in? I mean, so many to choose. No, I mean, I'm just the worst situation. So I well, well, as in like uncomfortable, I guess, you know, like where, where have you been like, oh God, what, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't say every day. Like I'm, on the, I'm not on about an existential crisis. I, I think, filming. yeah, I think the time we we uh smuggled ourselves into zimbabwe illegally can can, can you talk about this and then, <laughs> well we would <laughs> i was doing a film jamie and i were doing a film on victoria falls he wasn't there actually he was somewhere else so i i smuggled i drove a speedboat with all my equipment we were it was when the bbc was banned from zimbabwe right and in the morning i drove across the river the Zambezi above the falls in a little speedboat with all my equipment into some dirt track in the middle of nowhere kind of upriver from Victoria Falls town which is in Zimbabwe and I got met by my friend in a pickup truck and driven into town and we we waited it out until dark we were trying to shoot lunar rainbows across okay. the falls and uh yeah, we kind of waited it out till dark because we, we wanted to kind of cross the falls secretly. But while we were waiting out, we just got incredibly stoned. <laughs> and on Malawi gold, that's wonderful stuff. 
uh, <laughs> and then we went there. We drove down to the river. We drove through town, um, through Victoria Falls town with all our equipment and loaded it into this inflatable canoe in this kind of lay-by on the edge of the river. This is not the Malawi gold you're talking about. This is camera gear, isn't it? You're not smuggling that This over. is camera gear, okay, yeah. Good, 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 good. Just making and sure. And then the Mikey, this horrible little racist kid had this awful kid had a uh, canoe and me and my mate had this inflatable canoe and he went out in front and we we kind of set off with this inflatable canoe and the first thing that happened was there was a massive crocodile all we had was my little head torch which is enormous crocodile so we just had to canoe at this thing until it went under and then we got out we were so the first, from Zimbabwe, the first bit of water, the first island across, because the falls is made up like a mile of an island. The first island is called the Devil's Cataract. We were trying to get onto the Devil's Cataract. You're not allowed on the Devil's Cataract. So we canoed out and the, you hit a rip where the water starts speeding up because it's going over the falls. We're only like 100 yards above the falls there. And we hit the rip. And as we hit it, realized that the canoe was deflating because it oh god not what you want and i'm like tom we shit what do we do you're freaking out what do we do <laughs> and he says just row so we just rowed as fast and as hard as we could and the canoe was just going down and down and down and we got to the bushes on the other side just before we went over the edge of the falls basically Jesus. and it was dark and we were completely freaked out and we were there then we're on the devil's cataract of course once you're there you know you have to get back and i said to tommy oh where do we what do we do now he said i'll follow the hippo trails (laughs) that's a brilliant idea (laughs) following hippo trails around in the dark and that was that was kind of the scariest moment and that whole evening because then you know we had to spend four hours shooting rainbows in the dark knowing that we had to get back and i think that was the kind of scariest and most but uncomfortable yeah i mean just i don't know you just get used to it don't you yeah get used to being incredibly uncomfortable for long (laughs) i'm filming filming otters on rivers at night in england in the winter just just agonizingly cold all night yeah you're not moving are you i guess so you're gonna get get cold pretty quick i I remember the um the bot fly in your head and that was you know that was pretty horrific uh seeing i don't know if it hurt or not but this is i think um was it philippa squeezing it out yeah that that hurt the the leishmaniasis i got in my leg was worse it's flesh-eating disease that (laughs) that hurt that was horrible but you know there's i've been really lucky i've hardly had any diseases from travel that's yeah well that you know that they sh- you should put that on your uh, on your website hardly any diseases as, as as i've gone around the world that's a a good uh, indicator well well look charlie it's been fascinating kind of hearing all these stories and, and what you've been up to and, and i appreciate you coming on as well because i know you're, you're in quarantine at the minute so it's, oh, yeah, it's I'm really it, busy yeah, exactly well it's it's either it's either this or watch you know reruns on of oh, i'm writing my book at the moment Oh, are you? What's yes. that? What are you? Are you allowed to say what you're writing about, or I'm writing secret autobiography called uh, It's called I Can't Eat My Guinea Pig. I've had too much cocaine, and it comes out next year. Yeah, well, we've all been True there. Story. We? We've all we've all been in that situation, haven't we? 
Well, I have. <laughs> it's like the other. It's like if you were to write a, a memoir as a wildlife cameraman, I'm writing all the things that you wouldn't write. So like everyone, everyone else is thinking, oh, no, don't say that. I'm just going to say all the things. You're doing all say. of that. I'm doing yeah. all of the things that we actually did. I mean, we don't, I don't anymore, but all the things no. we actually did. So, you know, it's a very different look at working. Yeah. Malawi, Malawi gold and coked up on uh, guinea pigs is the tip of the iceberg, I, I suspect. So, yeah, look, look forward to that one. <laughs> look, cheers, buddy. I appreciate it. No problem. Good to see you. One of the things I've always quite admired about Charlie is that he just doesn't give a fuck. And it's quite refreshing, to be honest, because when we live in this day and age of the hey YouTube or hey Instagram, hey guys, all that sort of shit, uh, it's quite nice to see someone who's just being themselves, really, which is quite jarring because people aren't used to it. So I think that's great. I love it. And I love Charlie's work. He's an incredibly talented photographer and camera operator. Next week, I'll be interviewing Nick Baker, who is a wildlife TV presenter, an all-round bug nerd, as we chat about his career and why invertebrates are so amazing. Coincidentally, he was also in quarantine like Charlie, which meant he had the time to do this podcast. So the pandemic is actually helping me pin down guests so far, although Nick's actually in Japan while we recorded this interview. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll catch you next time. Cheers.